2: This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. I'm Tom Hartman, and uh, boy, it is getting weirder and weirder. Uh, Donald Trump tweeted out this morning, uh, you know, our beautiful statues are vanishing, or words to that effect. I mean, it's, there's... There is so much going on right now that I I just, you know, where to start? It's so the question is this, you know, there was, is this another Access Hollywood moment or not? When Access, when the Access Hollywood tape came out and Donald Trump was bragging to Billy Bush that he could grab women by the crotch anytime he wanted because he was a star. And that he loved to do it, and he had to put Tic Tacs in his mouth before he went out to meet that young woman because she was cute, uh, and he just might want to kiss her. It was bizarre, and and many Republicans at that point, when that Access Hollywood tape came out, figured, okay, this is it. He is toast. In fact, that was the one moment when Paul Ryan came out and said, nah, this is not. This is not." And then, of course, it blew over. It's like people, Steve Bannon said something, people are willing to put up with a lot if they think that their own interests are going to be served, is where I was going with that. Steve Bannon, when he was, uh, he had this this conversation, and I don't think it was like Scaramucci's, uh, you know, uh, the Mooch's conversation uh, with the reporter, uh, there's pretty broad consensus in this town. Uh, And I'm consensus is probably too strong a word, but I've talked to a number of people off the record who are like, you know, yeah, the mooch was probably drunk or high or something. But Steve Bannon, probably not. When he called Robert Kuttner, uh, you know, and and said, hey, here's here's what I'm thinking. You know, North Korea. No, we're not going to nuke North Korea. They, you know, well, his his exact quote was, "Until somebody solves the part of the equation that shows me that ten million people in Seoul don't die in the first thirty minutes from conventional weapons, I don't know what you're talking about." There's no middle military solution here. They got us, and he's right. But the thing that that got me, and 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 you know, and he and he said that the, you know these guys are a collection of clowns talking about the the the, the white nationalists and the white supremacists. And by the way, the AP is out saying, let's differentiate here. White nationalists are white people who think that they're, they should have their own country or their own part of the country. White supremacists are white people who think that they're superior to all other races and therefore entitled to power and privilege as a consequence of that. And they're suggesting that we should no longer use the phrase alt-right, or at least the, the Associated Press, the AP is no longer going to use that phrase unless they put it in quotation marks, because they think it sanitizes the racism. And I agree. And the whole alt left thing, of course, is purely an invention of Fox News and 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 right wing hate radio. It it pretty much doesn't exist anywhere else. There's a couple of message boards that um, are heavily dominated by people who hate quote Bernie Bros and <laughs> the mythical creature out there. Uh, it's not so mythical, but whatever. Um, that use alt left. And have been using alt left for some months now as a shorthand phrase to trash supporters of Bernie Sanders in the primary against Hillary Clinton. And that has to stop, <laughs> because this the, I, you know, there is no alt left. There, this is just. And frankly, there's no alt right. There's the racists on the right, and there's anti-fascists on the. Well, I, I'm not even sure it's on the left. I mean, this gets us back to. I had the caller yesterday who said, oh, you know, the anti-fascist movement started with the communists in Germany. Well, of course. I mean, it was the fascists were going after the communists. You know, Pastor Niemöller's, you know, for, for, I think it it started first, they came for the trade unionists, but then it was then they came for the communists, right? I mean, you know, Hitler was rounding up communists. Of course, they're going to say, we don't like fascists. So, but, but Steve Bannon, what he said is the longer they talk about identity politics, I got them. I want them to talk about racism every day. If the left is focused on race and identity and we go with economic nationalism, we can crush the Democrats. Now, what he's not saying is that if you mix identity politics and economics, which, by the way, is what Trump and Bannon are doing. They're basically saying You know, all those people of color, they're going to take your jobs, white people. That's what Steve Bannon and Donald Trump are saying. And that's what they've been saying since the, you know, geez, since after the Civil War. And on the left, if the the Democratic Party, you know, you know, much like, again, referring back to Bernie during his campaign, he was saying, yes, of course, you know, we've got to, we've got a level of playing field. We've got to, we've got to clean up what has happened in the past. We've got to do all this but we also have to have economic policies that help absolutely everyone. And as long as there's a perception on the part of independent voters who voted for Obama twice and then voted for Trump, and there were a lot of them, as long as there's that perception that the Democratic Party is not interested in their economic issues, but only in the economic issues of specific minority groups, which is the, which is not true by the way, but it's the way that both the media, much of the media, particularly Fox News and right-wing hate radio, and the Republican party are painting it, then to that extent, Steve Bannon is right, in my opinion. But the question, you know, is this, is this the end of Trump? I've been, for two days, I've been saying, okay, I think this is it. I think this time is different. I don't think this is like Excess Hollywood. I think he's going down and, you know, we'll see, right? <laughs> Obviously, but you know, what is it that he's coming down over? Here's, this is the, uh, from business insider, by the way, the associated press limits its use of the term all right. At AP, we have taken the position that the term all right should be avoided because it is meant as a euphemism to disguise racist aims. That's from the associated press. And. You know, Trump's Trump's tweet, tweet, (laughs) tweet, Trump's tweet storm this morning. I mean, here's a couple of other things. Publicity seeking Lindsey Graham. He's going to need Lindsey Graham, right? He doesn't have, you know, if John McCain checks out of the Senate, you know, we don't know how, how advanced his cancer is or what his treatment options are, but he may or may not be available for a lot of votes coming up. He's going to need every single Republican vote he's got. And, or maybe not, maybe he really is not in this to do anything other than just elevate his brand and then resign, say, you know, screw it. You people don't get me. I'm just, you know, see, that's what I think is going to happen. But anyhow, he tweeted publicity seeking Lindsey Graham falsely stated that I said there was a moral equivalency between the KKK, neo-Nazis and white supremacists. Actually, that's not what Lindsey Graham said. He said that, you're, that Trump said that there was a moral equivalency between those groups and the anti-fascists. But anyhow, actually, maybe there's a follow-up. And then, he, and then he said, great to see that Dr. Kelly Ward is running against Jeff Flake, who is weak on borders, crime, and a non-factor in the Senate. He's toxic. These are both from this morning. So here's the president of the United States attacking two leading senators in his, in his own party. How does that play out? Steve Bannon, I believe, made this call to Robert Cutner. You know, because he wanted to get the word out. The question is, why? It seems to me that John Kelly, who was just obviously very, very disheartened by Trump going off on his rant day before yesterday, that that John Kelly has effectively, successfully put a wall between Donald Trump and Steve Bannon. He has become the gatekeeper of the Oval Office, and Trump clearly doesn't like it. And Bannon clearly doesn't like it. And I think that, frankly, Bannon called up Cutter, this is just my opinion, but I think that he called up Cutter and said, hey, you know, let me tell you about this. Uh, Cutner, by the way, is the, the uh, editor. I'm not sure if he's the publisher, but I, he's the senior editor, the American Prospect, Progressive Magazine. I think he did this because he's trying to get around Kelly. He's trying to get these messages to the president of the United States. This is Bannon going to the press to talk to his boss, in my opinion. Or he's decided these guys are going down and I'm not going to go down with them. Which brings us to another juicy little piece of information. Felix Slater. This is uh, from an article over on uh, by David Edwards over on Raw Story. Felix Slater, one of Donald Trump's shadiest former business partners, writes David Edwards, is reportedly pre- preparing to, for prison time, and he says the president will be joining him behind bars. Well, don't count on that. He has the, pardon, the power of the pardon, and so will Mike Pence when he replaces him. But sources told the spectators, Paul Wood, that special counsel, Robert Mueller's deep dive into Trump's business practices may be yielding results. The president has said, I mean, it's possible there's a condo or something. So, you know, I'd sell a lot of condo units. Maybe somebody from Russia buys a condo. Who knows? Sater is the guy who was selling a lot of those condos. And now, and this, this, again, this isn't the Russian government. These are, these are oligarchs who may not have made their money in the most ethical, honest, or legal way. And probably it goes way beyond Russian oligarchs. There's probably Saudi, in fact, we know that there are Saudi oligarchs in Trump Tower and others. Whether they need to launder money or not, I don't know. But what Felix Sater told New York Magazine, in about the next 30 to 35 days, I will be the most colorful character you've ever talked about. And believe me, it ain't anything as small as whether or not you're going to call me to the Senate committee. And there is also word that Paul Manafort has turned on Trump. So maybe he's just like, hey, screw it. I don't care. I'm just going to be me. I'm going to go out in a blaze of glory. What do you think? I think it's possible. It seems like it's entirely possible. Media Matters, by the way, has a great piece. The headline is, Trump's remarks defending neo-Nazis were full of right-wing media talking points. And it's not just right-wing media. It's almost all Fox News. Virtually everything Trump has said has been ripped from Fox News. Uh, Particularly Laura Ingram and Sean Hannity and Fox and Friends. This is, you know, John Kelly, if you are, General Kelly, if you are listening, the thing you need to do is not control access to the Oval Office, although that's not a bad idea. You need to take Fox, you need to call whoever's providing cable service to the White House and tell them to block out the Fox channel. And then maybe Trump will start behaving rationally. But right now, as long as he's believing a propaganda channel, we're all in big trouble. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And here's the absolute proof of that. CNN, Fox News, and MSNBC. All three networks have called all 52 Republican senators. None of them will come on television. Welcome back. Did You see this? How this uh, Nazi de- uh, the, Ian Milheiser wrote about this over at the uh, Center for American Progress's blog, Think Progress. Uh, uh, Wunsiedel, Wunsiedel is a town of fewer than ten thousand people in uh, Deutschland, in Germany, and uh, once Rudolf Hess was buried there, and every year the the Nazis would go there to to make a pilgrimage to his grave. So in two thousand and eleven. They dug up his dra- grave and destroyed the grave and destroyed his body. And there's not, there's no Rudolf Hess anymore, but the Nazis still come to town. They can't, you know, by German law, they can't have swastikas. They can't do Sieg Heil salutes. They can't say Sieg you know, the other, but in, so instead what they do is they march through town wearing black clothes and carrying solid green flags, right? With this, so this is how Nazis present themselves in Germany. So. For 25 years, the people of uh, uh you know, grit, gritted their teeth and watched as these Nazis marched through their town every year. And so what they did last year is, or two years ago, they came up with, they, they, they actually embraced the Nazi march through their town. They said, oh boy, the Nazis are coming to town. Let's call this Nazis against Nazis and along the march route for every meter for every 3 feet every yard basically that a neo nazi walked the town had had found individual donors all around germany but mostly in the local area who were willing to give 10 euros 10 you know 10 dollars for every yard that a nazi walked to an anti-Nazi organization. It's called Exit Deutschland. It's an organization that helps neo-Nazis and other right-wing extremists escape radicalism and build new lives. And so the residents then line up along the the path with these milestones, you know, every every 50 feet or so, you have raised, you know, $1,000 to stop the Nazis. You have raised $2,000 to stop the Nazis. And at the very end, there's a giant banner, you know, 10,000 euros to fight Nazism and with slogans, quick like a greyhound, tough like leather, and as generous as never before, or if only the Fuhrer knew. And uh, th- so another German town, Rammingen, uh, deployed a similar tactic, and, and uh, th- they did this just last year, and it cut their neo-Nazi march in half. So, what do you think, guys? Uh, t- strange stuff, strange stuff. Is this the end of the Trump presidency? Is this the end of Donald Trump? What is next for the Republican Party? What's next for all of us? How do the Democrats work with this? You know, what do we, what is our next step? Hey, when was the last time you looked forward to sitting at your desk all day? Since getting my new X chair, not only am I enjoying the time spent at my desk much more than ever, but I can't believe how much more productive I'm being. My X chair is unbelievably stylish, and thanks to all the ways that you can personalize it, it literally molds itself to my body Trust me, this is not your grandfather's office chair. And because I don't need to have to keep taking breaks or stretch my back, I'm getting more done in a day than ever before. you spend a lot of time in your office chair every day, then you need to try the X-chair. In fact, here's a terrific deal just for my listeners. The makers of X-chair want you to feel the X-chair difference for yourself. So if you go to xchairtom.com right now, that's the letter X-chair, T-H-O-M, dot com, not only will they knock $100 off the price, but they'll even throw in a free footrest if you use the promo code Tom, T-H-O-M, just go to XChairTom.com right now. I love my X Chair, and you will too. So check out XChairTom. That's XChairTom.com now. All the important stories we cover and the issues we care about are at HartmanReport.com. Members of our community can comment and join the conversation. I just retweeted, uh, uh, uh cartoon is the wrong word, a, uh, well, an illustration by John Hartzell of uh, a kind of Victorian-looking woman talking to her daughter, saying a, uh, you know, so it's, it, it, I'm not sure that that has anything to do. But anyway, uh, she's she's saying a group of f- birds is called a flock, a group of fish is called a school, and a group of Trump supporters is called a clan. I love it. I love it. So... Anyway, Elizabeth in Millsboro, Delaware. Hey, Elizabeth, what's on your mind?
0: Good morning, Tom. Um, I, my statement is about uh, how you opened the show with this so-called alt-right, alt-left. Right. Um, here in Delaware, we have a one, one station that covers that, the whole state, plus part of Maryland, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. Uh, there was a time when there was a progressive in the morning and a right-winger in the afternoon. Now, we have two right-wingers. The woman in the morning refuses to take any calls from any of us who are opposed to uh, Trump and his plan uh, uh, activity. The one in the afternoon will take some of our calls, but he'll let you get one sentence out and then shut you down. Now, um, Sinclair Broadcasting, uh, uh, J.D. Hayworth, who's on Newsmax, um, One American News, all of these right-wing stations are just as bad as Fox, because they all... Uh, say the same thing. Oh, some
2: of them are, are actually worse, I mean they, they just, they, they go full, full born, born uh, conspiracy theory crazy stuff.
0: Absolutely, but here's what I heard from a friend of mine who actually is uh, uh, speaks on uh, talk radio. He said that the right-wingers get some kind of a document every day faxed to them. It's kind of like talking points and they're all saying the same things all across the country. Right. Last night, I had an opportunity to listen to this crazy nut, Mark Levin. Mark Levin is obviously paid by the Russians. There's no other way to look at it. I mean, this guy is so supportive of the alt-right and the fascists because that's what they are. But, but here's my question. Uh, in the AP, they said they're not going to call them alt-right, alt-right anymore. What are we to call these people?
2: Racists, fascists, or Nazis.
0: Racist, fascists, and Nazis. Well that kinda of gets it all.
2: Yeah. I mean let's just call them what they are. Um the, the whole point of the associated I've been
0: calling out I've been calling out those who continue to support Trump. If you're not a racist or a fascist, then why are you still supporting this man who is not really a Republican?
2: Right. And and if you want to take it back, you know, a year, if you're not a misogynist, if you're not, you know, a crotch grabber, if you're not I mean you know, the the list just goes on and on. It's the you know, what Donald Trump's history, uh, is, I mean, it's, this is, let me just, uh, add something here to this, Elizabeth. The, the Baltimore Sun ran an article by Doug Donovan, uh, on August 16th. That would have been yesterday. Uh, the headline, Jared Kushner's firm seeks arrest of Maryland tenants to collect debt. Now this is the Baltimore Sun, Baltimore, Maryland. Um, the real estate company owned by Jared Kushner, son-in-law and top advisor to President Donald Trump has been the most aggressive company in Maryland in using a controversial debt collection tactic, getting judges to order the arrest of people who owe his company money. Since 2013, the first full year in which the Kushner Companies operated in Maryland, corporate entities affiliated with the firm's 17 apartment complexes in the state have sought the civil arrest of 105 former former tenants for failing to appear in court to to face allegations of unpaid debt the Baltimore Sun has found. That's more than any other landlord in the state over that time. Court records show that 20 former Kushner attendants have been detained, in other words, arrested and put in jail. They call these arrests body attachments. It amounts to jailing people for being poor. And again, back to the Baltimore Sun, some tenants who have been targeted say they did not receive proper notice of the court appearances they were accused of missing. Advocates for consumer rights have long pushed for limits, legislation to limit body attachments. And then they go on to say the Kushner companies have nearly 9,000 units in Maryland, most of them in Baltimore County. They generated at least 90 million in revenue annually, and last year they showed a $30 million profit. And then they tell the story of Priscilla Priscilla Moreno, a Baltimore County school bus driver who works part-time in video production, narrowly avoided arrest last year. She and her three children were living in Whispering Woods. This is one of Kushner's apartment buildings, 524 apartments. Uh, when she got a federal voucher that she thought would help her move up in the world. So she moved out of there and moved into a better place. Then the Kushner affiliate, J2 Westminster, hit her with $7,100 in ju- uh, judgment in 2015. She says it didn't credit her security deposit. She, she disputes the charges. She says they were charging me for things like carpet cleaning, war- normal wear and tear. And they damn near put her in jail. She, she avoided arrest by filing for federal bankruptcy, a step taken by at least a dozen other former tenants sued by Kushner affiliates. Forbes, by the way, estimates the Kushner family fortune at $2 billion. This, I mean, it's, it, I, Mike Malloy used to refer to the Bush crime family. I'm starting to, it's, it's, this is like the, you know, the Trump crime family. Anyhow, uh, back to you, Elizabeth.
0: It's an international syndicate.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it no really is.
0: Housing anymore because what the Kushner family is doing is the same thing that corporations are doing all over this country, buying up big condos and then raising the rent so high that you could buy a house for what you're paying rent
2: for. Oh, it's insane, and it's not just big corporations; it's wealthy people, and it's also, um, you know, China is uh, and, and Chinese corporations are buying an awful lot of, and not just China. I mean, it's uh, other other countries as well that are very wealthy. Elizabeth, thank you for the call. Excellent point. John in Bo- in Boston. Hey, John. What's on your mind?
3: Hey, Tom. I haven't spoken to you in a while. How are you?
2: I'm well. How are you?
3: Um, well, like everybody, I'm just you know my I'm picking up my jaw from the, the last few days. Um, to get to to the overall point that you started with, and and uh, during the break on free speech, you kind of stole my thunder a little bit. Um, is this is this it for Trump? Um, you know, you like to think so. But uh, as you pointed out, and again, this doesn't apply to you, your listeners, or, and I, I think most people are good. But case in point, last night, CBS very quickly had a few Trump voters, and they said, you know, does this change anything? Oh, I don't care. No, no, well, he's still my guy. I don't care. I don't care. Right. And the word that came to me was apathy. And, and, and again, Trump really is the, the creation of this country. And you've pointed out many times. The apathy, or maybe I don't care, is a better way of saying it. Go back to Reagan, like you say. The cutbacks on education. People didn't say anything. Oh, I don't care. Oh, we don't need to know history. The Civil War, oh, that was a long time ago. Uh, Nazis, oh, that will never happen. I don't care. And then, you, uh, you know, and then the whole idea of money, and it's all about me or whatever. And then voting. The, the changes started happening during the 90s, and particularly the year, well, 2000, obviously. Oh, I don't care. It doesn't affect me. So to answer your question, I hope to God that this is the wake up call. But given history and given the programming, you know, and the news, and you've said it during the break, people didn't listen to free speech. Um, I mean, the news, we're, we're fact, unlike uh, your show is, is, you know, is real news. I mean, most news has been fact free. I mean, look at, look at during the Trump campaign, it was all, oh, you know, let's get Trump on, he, he's a jokester or whatever, and, and look at where we are now. So, I mean, it's, it's really, and, I, and climate change, oh, it doesn't matter, it doesn't, yeah. I mean.
2: I'm not sure it's apathy, John. I think that for many people, it's that they, they have their agenda, and they, they want Trump to promote. They think that he's going to bring economic prosperity or they think that he's going to put women in their place, you know, uh, to use their phrase back, you know, back in the kitchen, uh, you know, barefoot and pregnant. They think that he's going to take America back to times of segregation. God only knows what they think, but that's, you know, I think that they want that. To Tom Hartman. John, thanks for the call. But yeah, I I, you, I think you're also right about apathy. There's, there's a tragic amount of that, which is what I'm trying to overcome every day here. Come on, wake up. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Donut Economics, brand new book by Kate Raworth, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. And on page 21 in the uh, Who Wants to Be an Economist chapter, uh, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist, here they are. Whether you consider yourself an economic veteran or novice, now is the time to uncover the economic graffiti that lingers in all of our minds. If you don't like what you find, scrub it out, or better still, painted over with new images that far better serve our needs and times. The rest of this book proposes seven ways to think like a 21st century economist, revealing for each of those seven ways the spurious image that has occupied our minds, how it has come to be so powerful, and the damaging influence it has had. But the time for mere critique is past, which is why the focus here is on creating new images that capture the essential principles to guide us now. Diagrams in this book aim to summarize that leap from old to new economic thinking. Taking together, they set out, quite literally, a new big picture for the 21st century economist. So Here is a whirlwind tour of the ideas and images at the heart of Donut Economics. First, change the goal. For over 70 years, economics has been fixated on GDP, or national output, as its primary measure of progress. That fixation has been used to justify extreme inequalities of income and wealth coupled with unprecedented destruction of the living world. For the 21st century, a far bigger goal is needed, meeting the human needs of every person within the means of our life-giving planet. And that goal is encapsulated in the concept of the donut. The challenge now is to create economies, local to global, that help to bring all of humanity into the donut's safe and just space. Instead of pursuing ever-increasing GDP, it's time to to discover how to thrive in balance. Second, see the big picture. Mainstream economics depicts the whole economy with just one extremely limited image, the circular flow diagram. Its limitations have furthermore been used to reinforce a neoliberal narrative about the efficiency of the market, the incompetence of the state, the domesticity of the household, and the tragedy of the commons. It is time to draw the economy anew embedding it within society and within nature and powered by the sun. This new depiction invites new narratives about the power of the market, the partnership of the state, the core role of the household, and the creativity of the commons. Third, nurture human nature. At the heart of 20th century economics stands the portrait of rational economic man. He has told us that we are self-interested, isolated, calculating, fixed in taste, and dominant over nature and his portrait has shaped who we have become. But human nature is far richer than this. As early sketches of our new self-portrait reveal, we are social, interdependent, approximating, fluid in values, and dependent upon the living world. What's more, it is indeed possible to nurture human nature in ways that give us a far greater chance of getting into the donut's safe and just space. Fourth, get savvy with systems. The ironic crisscross of the market supply and demand curves is the first diagram that every economic student encounters, but it is rooted in misplaced 19th century metaphors of mechanical equilibrium. A far smarter starting point for understanding the economy's dynamism is systems thinking, summed up by a simple pair of feedback loops. Putting such dynamics at the heart of economics opens up many new insights, from the boom and bust of financial markets to the self-reinforcing nature of economic inequality and the tipping points of climate change. It's time to stop searching for the economy's elusive control levers and start rewarding it as an ever-evolving, complex system. Fifth, designed to distribute. In the 20th century, one simple curve, the Kuznets curve, whispered a powerful message on inequality. It has to get worse before it can get better, and growth will eventually get it, make it up, or even it up. But inequality, it turns out, is not an economic necessity. It is a design failure. 21st century economists will recognize that there are many ways to design economies to be far more distributive of the value that they generate. An idea best represented as a network of flows. Um, It means that going beyond redistributing income to exploring ways to redistributing wealth, particularly the wealth that lies in controlling land, enterprise, technology, knowledge, and the power to create money. Sixth, Create to regenerate. Economic theory has long portrayed a clean environment as a luxury good, affordable only for the well-off. This view was reinforced by the environmental Kuznets curve, which once again whispered that pollution has to get worse before it can get better and growth will eventually clean it up. But there is no such law. Ecological degradation is simply the result of degenerative industrial design. This century needs economic thinking that unleashes regenerative design in order to create a circular, not linear, economy and to restore humans as full participants to Earth's cyclical processes of life. Today, excuse me. Seventh, be agnostic about growth. One diagram in economic theory is so dangerous that it's actually never gra- drawn the long term path of GDP growth. Mainstream economics views endless economic growth as a, growth as a must, but nothing in nature grows forever. And the attempt to buck that trend is raising tough questions in high-income but low-growth countries. The book, Donut Economics. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Okay, so to talk about the market, I mentioned as, as, we, hit the, as we hit the break um, that my sense is that the worm is about to turn, as they say. The economy has been held together since the, since the crash of 2008, basically by bailing wire and bubble gum. The, the bailing wire is the inflation, the pouring of money by the fed into the economy. And, uh, you know, they do this by, by buying t- so-called toxic assets. In other words, bad loans from banks. And you know bonds and CDOs and things like that, and they also buy treasuries as a way of, cha- you know, inflating the money supply and, and injecting money into our economy. So the the Fed has been uh, artificially holding down borrowing rates so that companies, can can uh, and and you know giant corporations and very very wealthy individuals can borrow money at basically one percent or less. And, uh, and then those corporations are very glad to loan it to you and me for 29 or 32% or more. Uh, you know, some of them are even running in, you know, the, the, the payday lending business, you know, where it's 500, 400, 500% a year. And it's, it's very, very profitable for these wealthy people and these big corporations, but it basically screws America. A report came out yesterday that we are 1.2 trillion dollars in debt in the United States just with, you know, revolving credit, with credit card debt and things like that, which is, uh, you know, something that we've never seen before. That level of debt we have now surpassed where we were in 2008. And to a large extent, you know, that, you know, the debt that we had then caused the crash. So the, the bailing wire is basically the free money, the bubble gum that has been holding the economy together is psychological. And, you know, it's, it's essentially Wall Street's belief that Donald Trump is going to help out Wall Street. Keep in mind, Wall Street, the state of the Dow, the state of the standards and poor, these are not reflections of the health of our economy. They are reflections of the ability of, 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 you know, very, very wealthy people to keep inflating the value of their investments. But also keep in mind that when the stock market goes down, very wealthy people make out like bandits too. In fact, this is something that, you know, I wish that when I was a kid, my dad had sat me down and taught me. And, you know, if you have children, you may want to sit your kids down and tell them this, that every five, six, seven, eight, at the very most nine years, between every six and nine years, capitalism fails. It, it has always done this. This is how Warren Buffett got insanely rich. You don't have to absolutely time the market. All you have to know is every six, seven, eight, nine years, every you know, every cycle, the market's going to fall. It won't necessarily be a depression, but it'll be a drop. And then if you buy like crazy on that drop then you ride it back up to the top over the next five or six years, and then you sell. So buy low, sell high, right? We've heard this for years. It actually is true. And if I had just started doing this with, you know, a few hundred dollars when I was 20 years old, I'd be insanely rich right now. And like I said, this is how Warren Buffett became one of the richest guys in the world, is basically just doing this. You buy stocks when the market is going up, when it's from the bottom as it's going up and you sell them when it hits the top and starts going back down. So the psychology of the market is, hey, it's still going up. It's still going up. Now, why is it still going up, still going up? Because the psychology of the market is tied into this belief that stocks will benefit when rich people have more money. Now, why would stocks benefit when rich people have more money? A very, very, because, you know, rich people aren't buying more stuff. The founder of the Patriotic Millionaires on this program, uh, a couple of years ago, you know, he said, uh, Tom, how many pairs of pants do you have? And I'm like, I don't know you know, six, eight, nine, something like that. And he's like, yeah, me too. But I get, I, but I have 10,000 times more money than you do, but I don't need 10,000 times more pants. So if rich people get more money, why would that cause the stock market to go up? Because they're not going to buy more stuff. And buying more stuff is what stimulates demand in the marketplace. And that demand is what makes money for corporations. So why is it that rich people getting more money makes the market go up? Because they need some place to put that money. So, you know, what's been happening is that the very, very wealthy in this country have been just sucking down the cash ever since Reaganomics was put into place. And in fact, you really want to have your eyes pop out of your head. Just, you know, go on the internet and track down a chart of the stock market from 1960 to today or 1950 to today. And yeah, slow and steady rise through the fifties, sixties, seventies, and eighties. And then we got into the Reaganomics era where rich people started getting really insanely rich, really, really fast. And you look at the 90s and the 2000s and the 2010s and now, and the stock market has just exploded. It's like, it's almost a logarithmic rise. Why? Because rich people have all that more money and they need to put it someplace so they put it in the stock market. So you've got the bailing wire and the, and the bubble gum, right? Or the barbed wire and the bubble gum holding the economy together. The, 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 the cheap money, the free money and the psychology and Janet Yellen has been signaling, you know, it's time to dial back the free money, but she also knows that the minute she starts doing that in a really serious and consequential way, I'm, you know, we don't raise a a hundred basis points. It's a hundred hundredths of a point or a thousandths of a point. Uh, Instead we're going to, we're going to raise it, you know, know, 500 basis points. We're going to raise it a whole half a, half a point, the interest rates, or we're going to raise them a whole point. At that point, it becomes much more expensive to borrow for big corporations, and so they cut back on, on their borrowing. And this starts this unravels the number one, it reduces the money supply because money in the money supply in the United States is literally loaned into existence by banks. When our money supply expands, it's because banks are doing more lending. When our money supply contracts, which happens with every recession, it's because banks are doing less lending. Banks create our money. They're, they're sitting on a million dollars in deposits. That means they can loan out $10 million. When they loan out, you know, the $10 million, $9 million just got created out of thin air, just as a bookkeeping entry on the bank's books. So this is the system. So now what comes along? So the belief has been that Republicans having the House, the Senate, and the White House, and the Supreme Court, means that they will be able to successfully cut taxes on rich people even more and cut taxes on big corporations so they can shovel more of that money passing through to rich people. So rich people will get even richer and have to put their money in the stock market. So the stock market is continually going up in anticipation of this. So what happens... If you've, if you followed all this and you get all, you know, where we're at right now and how we got here and why, what happens when the psychology falls apart? We just, we just covered what happens when the free money falls apart. What happens if the Fed dials back? Well, you know, Janet Yellen is, you know, going very slow on this. I, I would be surprised to see an interest rate hike by the end of the year, but Janet Yellen is supposed to be replaced next year. At the beginning of the, I believe it's in January, that the, the Donald Trump has an opportunity to appoint a new Fed chair. Now, is, is it going to be yelling, or is it going to be some right wing crank? If he puts some right wing crank in there and they start messing with interest rates, boom, we're in a depression. Because that's the the bailing wire, right? The bubblegum part of it is is this, and this is huge. And I've kind of buried the lead here because this is where I was starting, the psychology of the marketplace. And that is that if the market comes to believe that Donald Trump has so screwed up things, He's got, you know, He's angered his own Republican senators. He's, he's tweeting out this morning against Jeff Flake and, 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 and uh, Lindsey Graham. If he has so screwed things up that he can't get his tax cuts passed, then rich people are not going to get that extra trillion dollars that they're going to put in the stock market. So the stock market's not going to go up another trillion dollars. And when that happens, this wildly overvalued stock market is going to start to collapse. So this is my prediction of what's going on. And I think that, frankly, we're at that moment right now. Now, this is just my opinion, and I have been so wrong on the stock market so many times. Please don't make investment decisions based on what I'm saying. But I'm looking at this thing and I'm thinking, okay, the money supply thing is like, you know, it's just it's so fragile. And the psychology thing is just about to fall apart. We'll be back. welcome back. Uh, Paul in Chicago. Hey, excuse me. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul. What's on your mind today?
1: Yeah. Hi, Tom. You, you mentioned uh, Rudolf Hess, and I note that this is the 30th anniversary, such as is of his death. Only 30 years ago.
2: Yeah. I my uh, it's kind of a weird story, but um, a, a dear friend of mine in Germany had been a a soldier in Hitler's army, um, a conscript. He was not a fan of the Nazis, but uh, he was a, a fervent Christian. And after the war, he he was trying to figure out who are the least of the least. You know, Jesus said, visit those in prison. And once a year, he went to Spanau and visited Rudolf Hess. He was the only person who ever visited Rudolf Hess, to the best of his knowledge. And uh, it always... You know, I I've, I always felt very conflicted about that, but I know a lot about Rudolph Hess. Anyhow, back to you, Paul.
1: Well, the the hashtag of my call is, and as I told this, the screen, uh, Nate, was uh, uh, what are the surprises about Trump? Other than he's a lot worse than we thought, at least a lot worse than I ever thought. Yeah, I thought Tom that. It would be kind of like the Bush presidency. Well, we'd rock along, and life would be, seem normal, and about uh, a couple times a month, something outrageous would happen, and we'd all go out of our minds. I didn't expect daily chaos. Yeah. But I've got to tell you something. Uh, back in Michigan State, there was, speaking of Germany, there was a professor, eh, probably a little after time, His name was Kenneth Walter. He taught in the James Madison College. He was very popular, Uh I didn't have him as a professor, but people used to show up to his class, as I did with a student, another, another roommate of mine. He, he talked about the Holocaust, and the one, his big message about the Holocaust was, don't think that this is ancient history just because this took place 20, 25 years before you were all born. Right. He said, this can happen again. It can happen again anywhere. Yep. It can happen again here. And I have to tell you something. Um, My mother's family came from Germany in 1925 because my great-grandparents recognized that Germany was in a whole lot of hurt. Adolf Hitler was in prison in 1925, and they were afraid of him there. Yep. And all of his cohorts that they knew, my great-grandparents knew, that Germany was heading down that road eight years before Hitler ever came to power. And so what I'm trying to say here is that if you were if if the Democrats, Liberals, Progressives were disimpassioned in twenty sixteen, we really we were losing. What reason did we have to come out to vote in twenty sixteen? Because we were already in the quicksand. The stonewalling of Barack Obama's presidency was the canary in the coal mine as to where we were going. And Merrick Garland and
2: and all the other crimes committed by Mitch McConnell.
1: Yeah, yeah. And if stonewalling and Neil Gorsuch, they they knew this was all taking place. I'm I'm half convinced that that the whole Republican Party is part of this conspiracy. But uh, if we don't see a turnout in 2018 by Democrats that is completely uh, cannot be but that no voter suppression can quell, right? Blow out the walls. Massive turnout. Yeah. Then I'm I I'm sorry about this country. I'm, I think this country will have to go down hit rock bottom the way germany did before we f- figure out where we are
2: well and and that may not be a terrible thing it'll be a painful thing it'll be an awful thing but uh... you know the the iroquois confederacy figured out how to have peace after having too many brutal wars i mean they just finally said that's enough no more wars the you know the but, germans but got necessary. there the japanese got there um, you know and and also you know, we're one of the few countries in the world that does not forbid Nazi iconography and we do it in the name of the first amendment, but I'm wondering if, you know, even the first amendment, uh, protection of free speech does not protect you from, from hate speech and from, you know, the, the, the old cliche, you know, yelling fire in a crowded theater. How is carrying a swastika down the street, not the equivalent of shouting fire in a crowded theater given the kind of power now that the that the, all that, the, the, the fascists have. This
1: well, hey, Tom, re- recall where, what the case was. Uh, that was the Schenck case where the say, uh, crying movie, uh, sorry, Fire in a Crowded Theater was, he was throwing communist pamphlets off a building in New York. Mm. So It, it, it was, that's the, way, that's the way the United States reacted to it then.
2: Wow, so, I did not realize that. That, that
1: was, was all about.
2: So throwing, wow. What, what was the name of that case, Paul?
1: That was the. I think that was either. I think it was the Abrams case, nineteen
2: nineteen. Abrams, nineteen nineteen. I'm going to have to look it up. Thank. You. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you, and on the line with us is Manuel Perez Rocha. He is an associate fellow with the Institute for Policy Studies. ips-dc.org is the website. Uh, you can tweet him at Manuel Perez IPS or IPS underscore DC. Manuel, welcome to the program.
4: Thank you for having
2: me. Thank you for joining us. Uh, NAFTA, let, let's talk about NAFTA. Our, our, what is the status and state of the, uh, of these renegotiations? I, I, I talked with uh, uh, Melinda St. Louis last night from Public Citizen, and she, she said that um, basically there's 500 corporations that have sent their, their people for these negotiations, but there are no representatives of we the people. Is the Trump administration basically repeating the the process that we've seen for decades now of you know these negotiations will be done of by and for big corporations
4: yeah that that's correct and therefore we know little about the status of the renegotiation because we're not invited to the table or as it's called to the side room where only corporations are there to whisper to the ears of of the negotiators of our of our countries so um... So we know little about the status. In fact, uh, even worse, the Mexican the Mexican government decided that uh, that uh, the, the negotiations would be secret. They bluntly put it like that, that they wouldn't uh, show to the Mexican people uh, the cards or the strategies. They said that this was uh, necessary. That they justified, said that it's necessary not to rebuild the cards to the counterparts. However, in the end, this is what's going on. Yeah. Yesterday, there was a big march in Mexico, a big rally with peasant groups and unions and environmentalists decrying this, this secrecy, and uh, more than 10,000 people marched in Mexico City.
2: Wow. Wow. Is uh, And those people, are they marching in Mexico City for the elimination of NAFTA, for the changes in that? Cause it has seemed to me that ever since NAFTA was passed that that all three countries, Mexico, the United States, and Canada, all three of us got screwed. The only winners were the giant multinational corporations that right now have lawsuits to the tune of $30 billion against sovereign governments.
4: Of course, this is what has to be understood, uh, basically, that uh, it is not some as as President Trump portrayed it during his campaign and continues doing. So it isn't like one country gets cruised and the other wins. Uh, In Mexico, a very, very tiny elite has been winning with NAFTA. Most of the people have been, uh, most of the working class and the medium class of Mexico has been really affected in many ways. What has to be understood is that originally, the original design of NAFTA, was to make them best to to do, to make the best of of the the salary gap between the U.S. and Canada on one side and Mexico on the other, and this is what has moved so many companies to Mexico. But but this has not made up for all the jobs lost in Mexico as well, and and all the livelihoods in the rural areas lost in Mexico because of NAFTA as well. So it's been a um, uh, however you want to see it, has been, uh, in detriment of, of our populations, NAFTA. Yeah. And um, I was just hearing your prior, your prior program about the Cosnets curve, and they were saying that inequality is a designed failure. And this is exactly what NAFTA has been, a designed, uh, designed to, to, to impoverish people and to fill the pockets of corporation or corporate, you know, the corporate elite with, with so much money. And it's not a coincidence that inequality has skyrocketed so much in the U.S. and in Mexico precisely in the
2: last two decades. No? Yeah. And, and perhaps in Canada as well. I, I don't know the statistics there. So uh, you're, you're an associate fellow with the Institute for Policy Studies, uh, you know, a think tank here in D.C. What, what are your recommendations?
4: Well, we're working, uh, you know, internationally among sectors, among unions, uh, environmentalists, and, and we produced a, a declaration two months ago when we had a large gathering in Mexico City with hundreds of people, lots of people from the U.S. and Canada went there as well, from, from the National Farmers Union, from the FLCIO, from public citizens, from the Sierra Club, et cetera. and And our recommendation is now to hold on. First of all, they have so much hurry in renegotiating NAFTA, and it's so much so confusing because it's not very clear what the United States government really wants. you know. Um, and the recommendation is to hold on until there is a democratic process in which organizations of all sorts can participate and have a, can have a meaningful debate. Um, but for example, one of the recommendations is that uh, we have to, yeah, reinstate rules of origin, but not only rules of origin at the North American level, but at national level, so we can guarantee that our trade, our internal trade in North America has more national content. The problem with Mexico's exports, 80% of Mexican exports go to the U.S., but they're not really Mexican. Mexico is an assembly plant, a massive assembly plant for, because of the cheap labor. And what we need is to put, fast Mexicans, we need to put, I'm of Mexican origin, uh, we need to put much more national content into the exports of Mexico. That is that make small producers participate more because they've been completely sidelined of, of, of international trade. So this is just one, one uh, proposal. The other one, big, big one, is that salaries in Mexico, wages have to, uh, stopped being suppressed because they're suppressed officially suppressed and they maintain the lower the minimum level to less than five dollars a day, and this is completely anti-competitive, of course, for for U.S. and Canadian labor. Uh, third, we have to I don't know if Melinda spoke about this yesterday, Melinda San Luis, about the need to get rid of the investor-state dispute settlement mechanism that allows corporations to bring governments to tribunals like the World Bank's exit the International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes, we have to get rid of that unfair system that also has this chilling effect on government regulations. Government uh, responsible social environmental regulations are chilled because of this fear that the big companies can bring them uh, and sue them for hundreds or even thousands of dollars. Mexico has lost hundreds of Millions of dollars already under these suits. Canada is being sued for uh, billions, and the U.S. is also at risk of being sued permanently. Yeah. So yeah. there's many, many, many uh, proposals, but of course we don't have the space to, to have them heard.
2: Yeah, it's it's amazing stuff, and we, and it's getting no coverage in the media whatsoever. And I really need we really need to pay attention to what's going on here. Although it's all happening between behind closed doors, which is not a good sign. Manuel Perez Zorocha, the uh, Associate Fellow of the Institute for Policy Studies, ips-dc.org. Thank you, Manuel. No, thank you very much. Great talking. To you. We'll be back. Hey, you guys know I'm a big fan of board games, and it's not just me. They're gaining in popularity. Board games now are just so much better than the tired old games that we played when we were kids. Take one of my favorite new board games: it's called Evolution: The Beginning. Evolution is a game that allows players to create their very own species and evolve them as the game goes goes on. It's really fun. It's really easy to learn. Everyone can appreciate the value of gathering around the table and playing this game. Even Science Magazine is getting in on the action. Recently, they ran a feature on Evolution. What's great is that there's real science behind the game design. Heck, Nature, the science journal, even recommends it. I highly recommend you go get this game too. The only place you can buy Evolution at the beginning is at Target. And I understand it's now on sale for $5 off. So next time you're at Target... Go to the game section and look for the game with a big dinosaur on the front. That's Evolution: The Beginning. Now on sale for five dollars off at Target. So when you go to Target, look for this game. I I gave this game to my kids. It's we we play it at the holidays. It's it's really cool. Welcome back, Tom Hartman, here with you. Okay, this uh, I mentioned this before the uh, break at the I don't I don't one of the breaks recently. Anyhow, this this tweet from Auburn uh, at Auburn Seminary. Wow. Line of residents in Durham, North Carolina, attempting to turn themselves in for the crime of removing the Confederate monument. You'll recall that there was a Confederate monument that was spontaneously torn down uh, either yesterday or the day before yesterday by local people in Durham, North Carolina. And the police department said, we are treating this as, as a felony, as destruction of public property. And so now you've got this long line of people's, I mean, a huge long line of people. You can, you can check my Twitter feed on this thing and it's been retweeted 6,400 times. And that was before I, I retweeted it too. Um, people saying, yeah, I was there. I participated. Sure. You know, put me in jail. Yeah. You know, they're just, it's just like shutting down the criminal justice system. It's, it's amazing. Um, the, uh, You'll recall when, we were, when Victoria Jones was on the line with us, she said, I've got, I just sent you a story you're going to find interesting. Uh, she did. It's in the Washington Journal. Washingtonjournal.com is the website. And uh, it, was, it went up yesterday. It's by Grant Stern. And the headline, Newly leaked emails just revealed Trump family implicated in $350 million fraud investigation. Now, the Trump Soho Hotel in Manhattan was going to be a sweet deal for the Trump family. If they could get this thing built, uh, they basically it wouldn't be done with Trump money. It would be a licensing deal. They'd have millions of dollars coming to them with no liability. You know? And so they really worked hard to make this thing happen. The Trump Soho Condominium Hotel, it ultimately failed You know, it, it, uh, in 2014. It was foreclosed upon by its lenders. But... Uh, the article it's beginning to look like Special Counsel Mueller will catch President Trump and his three eldest children committing the first ever reality TV show Assisted Financial Crime because they actually talked about it on The Apprentice right all collaborating in a 350 million dollar bank fraud related to the Trump Soho condominium hotel and they're going after they're going after Don Jr they're going after Ivanka and they're going after uh, Eric, and as well as Donald, the fraud ridden Trump so hotel project ultimately failed. We've obtained leaked copies of these emails related to the key lawsuit, which are embedded below that outline the Trump family's complicity in a major financial crime. They show that Donald Trump and his three eldest children participated in a cover up in order to keep borrowing massive construction loans on the hotel they pitched on NBC's Apprentice show from failing during the financial turndown. Trump Organization earned $3 million from the fraud just last year alone, even as the hotel's fortunes have sunk post-election. Three weeks ago, Bloomberg News reported that Mueller is focusing on the lower Manhattan Trump Soho deal. Vanity Fair reported recently that new ma- re- emails revealed the Trump family's participation in a criminal enterprise there. I'm telling you, they, they, the Republicans are over it with this guy. And a, a, of course, Mueller was a Republican, too. They're going to find some basis to impeach him. And, you know, I don't think it's going to have anything to do with, I think it's going to, it's, I don't think it's going to be about the election. I don't think it's going to be about Russia. I think it's going to be about Trump being broke, being a hustler, being a con man and, 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 you know, committing financial crimes, financial fraud. And I've been saying this for some time. I, you know, I really think that's where the bodies are buried in Trump land. And I don't think that he intended to become president. I don't think he even intended to become the Republican Party's nominee. I think he was just very upset that NBC had not renewed his contract for The Apprentice. And so he was going to show them he was going to become even more famous by entering the Republican primary. And he was going to do it in a totally Bulworth way. I mean, this is the movie, you know, Mel Brooks movie, The Producers, where, you know, the guys get together and say, hey, let's make a Broadway play that's a complete flop. And we'll and we'll we'll organize it so that after it flops, we can keep all the investors money. And, and and if it doesn't flop, then we're in big trouble because then we, you know, the investors money has to actually be spent and et cetera. And so they put together this play called springtime for Hitler. And it's like thinking it would be a huge flop and it actually worked. And the irony and the comparison is pretty strong, you know, because the, you know, in the producers, the play was springtime for Hitler in, in Trump land, he tried to run the same scam on Republican voters. And now we've got an orange version of kind of a pathetic weak need Hitler anyway, uh, in the white house. And, uh, it's at at some point, I keep saying at some point, the Republicans are going to say enough already. You know, there is a story out there that Mitch McConnell met with 80 Republicans yesterday, uh, that, you know, that they're, they're seriously trying to figure out what to do. They're, they're terrified to go to do town halls. They're terrified to go on television. When was the last time you saw an elected Republican on the air? I mean, it's just like, it ain't happening. They're, they're scared to death. Anyhow, Joe in Rutherford, North Carolina. Am I saying that right, Joe?
5: Yes, you are, Tom. I'm a what? longtime listener. I grew up in uh, Michigan, Grand Rapids, Calvin College.
2: Oh, great.
5: I Christian church. Had some uh, dis- neat discussions in the late, uh, early 60s, rather, with the divorces. Huh. But anyways, I called because I used to teach. I taught history for 30-some years. And some of those were in Hazard, Kentucky, in a little community college there. They wanted me to teach a black history course. Now, I'm not black, but I went ahead and I studied at the University of Iowa back in the mid-60s and I got my master's degree. and They didn't have black history courses there either, but I was interested in the subjects around a lot. And I taught a course there every other year, and it was about 10% black students. so And things were a little different. I don't remember any statutes in that. this little town of Hazard honoring... Um, the Confederacy It you was know, part of a part of Kentucky, which was probably pro, mostly pro-Union. But what I really called you about was that I was watching. My wife and I were watching CBS News last night for the first time in, in months. We recorded all three major networks to see how they would handle what was going on in Charles, Charleston,ville, Virginia. And lo and behold, on CBS they had three people. I think one of your callers mentioned it earlier. They had three people come on, and they said, we're going to ask these three people who voted for Trump how they feel now. Now, when they showed the people, my wife and I just about gasped out loud, and we really did. There were three ladies. That's not the big issue. But two of the ladies were black ladies. Hmm. And they all three said, oh, we love Trump. We voted for him, and we're still backing him. That's all they had. Wow. And that really shocked us. Um, otherwise the coverage was pretty good that last night for what was going on in the united states and so on
2: but that really blew us away <laughs> yeah it it would blow me away too it's it, I, I, I. he's gonna have i mean as long as the propaganda channels as long as right wing hate radio and Fox news continue to aggressively support him. He's going to have a strong base, but the day that they turn on him, it's all going to evaporate or most of it is going to evaporate. All he'll have is Breitbart and his And Then he's going to be in a real pickle. Joe, thanks for the call. Thanks for the heads up on that. That's fascinating. And I appreciate the call. Yeah. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you and Rick in western West Virginia hey Rick, what's on your mind today hey uh you know
6: i've been I've been listening to the last few days uh, what Trump did was you know hopefully he will take down the Republican party as it is today as it is because obviously he doesn't have the capacity to lead this country uh, much like make policy. I mean so many blunders. I, now I live in a county. We got Stonewall Jackson Lake, Stonewall Jackson Dam, we got statues, we got this. But West Virginia didn't even become West Virginia until 1863, and they have never even fought in the civil war. I live in an area where they, you know they proudly display the Confederate flag. But what I don't understand, I'm the follower and I come from a military background. I have respectfully disagree on a couple points. Uh, And the points are they were only following orders. Now, I don't know uh, Lee's or Beauregard's or political inclinations, but they were all graduates of West Point. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh,
2: That's how they got to be generals.
6: I don't think they really had much choice. I mean, when the Confederacy seceded from the Union, what would they do? I, I'm still. You know,
2: we hanged Nazis who made that excuse, yeah, I know Rick.
6: We did. We at Nuremberg. You're exactly right. You know, we got five chapters of the Ku Klux Klan in the state of West Virginia, and I never understood that. And we got skinheads. We got. You know what, really Freaks me out. Mm. People I know rode motorcycles back in the seventies. Turned in a bunch of skinheads with ponytails, carrying pistols. <laughs> they have no education. They don't understand. They. I don't even know how to put it. it makes me so and it, it just. But you're right about. Uh, I'll, I was going to talk to you about uh, your book Crash 2016. I think you got it off by about 22 months.
2: Yeah, I think so too and yeah,
6: know, uh yeah really. it will take it may cost a lot of lives I don't know but I hope not uh,
2: me too me too it's it's a it's a tough one Rick thanks for the call and and uh, and for the the update on West Virginian ses, sensibilities uh, I appreciate it nice to hear from you coming up tomorrow we'll have the latest news and information from Wall Street and Main Street all points in between plus best of the rest of the news and don't forget. Democracy begins with you. Get out there, show up, participate, tag your it. We'll see you tomorrow.